Hello, check, check. Oh my goodness. Good morning, church. Uh, it is both an honor and a privilege to be here this morning. Oh wait, I, I'm supposed to dismiss Kidmo, huh? Even though I would actually, man, I know you guys need to go, but I would love for the kids um, to stay. I love teaching kids. Um, yes, Pastor Scott is correct. My name is Jimmy Davis. I am the newly minted uh, youth pastor here at Journey Church, and I absolutely love teaching uh, our youth group. Uh, but another big passion of mine is also being able to preach uh, main service. And actually, it's really funny. I got a, uh, a text message just this week from um, a friend of mine out in California, where I, I used to pastor, and he sent me this picture of me giving my farewell sermon to my church. And he said, hey, this was you two years ago this week. And I go, that's funny because I'm going to be preaching this week. So it's lit- literally been 24 months since I've uh, preached the main service. So if I'm a little rusty, I could use some grace, maybe even a little bit of prayer. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a minute since I've, I've done this. Um, but if you um, have been with us here the last couple weeks, you'll know that our, our big gun, uh, Pastor Mark, uh, is usually one up here. And he's been... Uh, <laughs> He's been walking us through a series in Genesis, and his, his whole reasoning for, for taking us back to Genesis, if you uh, listen to him, he says this. He goes, you can't understand the New Testament until we first understand the Old Testament, and that makes all the sense in the world. But what Pastor Mark does is he actually has been taking it one step further. See, he doesn't just want us to understand the Old Testament from our American modern lens, he's been teaching us, how do you understand the Old Testament from an ancient Near Eastern lens? Now, specifically, he's introduced this Hebrew literary tool called a chiasm, where in the middle of this structure is what we call the treasure. So has Pastor Mark just been giving us the treasure? No, he's been teaching you and I how to find the treasure. And like uh, Pastor Mark, in my own seminary uh, studies, chiasm wasn't something that we used in Genesis. Chiasm was actually something that we used in uh, poetry. That'd be like poetic literature or wisdom literature. Works well in the Psalms and the Proverbs. I never knew that it worked in Genesis, and he's been blowing my mind with the whole chiasm thing. Now, this morning, I will not be doing any fancy chiasms with you um, this morning, nor am I going to be talking about Genesis uh, by itself. What I'm going to be doing for you here today is teaching you what is the big point of the whole Bible. Because if it follows that you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament, well, what if you understood the Bible cover to cover? Would that help us understand both the Old and the New Testament. So my goal this morning is I want to teach the Bible from cover to cover for you this morning. Yeah, yeah, which is a huge deal. So, I mean, it's great, like, you know, we can study Genesis, and you can study a a blade of grass. But what this morning we're going to do, I'm going to take you up 30,000 feet in the air, and we're going to take a look at the landscape in general. Now, like, like Pastor Mark, I'm not going to just hand you the treasure. I'm going to teach you how to find this treasure for yourself. Now, unlike a chiasm, there's actually this 
this other tool that we use called story or narrative as a, a powerful way of, of teaching a big point. And here is my whole reasoning for, for wanting to do this this morning. I can tell you at my last year of seminary, I'm in a classroom with a seminary professor, and all these other, other people in the room, they're, they're seniors too. We're talking 98 graduate hours of studying the Bible, and a professor comes along and he says, who here could tell me the big point of the Bible? Did you know that none of us were able to give him an answer? Now, could we give you the, the Greek and the Hebrew for any passage? Can we tell you people, places, and dates? I mean, we're, we're the nerds of the nerds. I mean, we're fresh seminary students. We could tell you all this stuff, but we can't tell you the big point of the Bible? Is that a problem? That's a big problem. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you how to understand story as a way of understanding the entire Bible story so that you get the big point. So diving into the story here, we'll go ahead and put up one of the slides here, Jeremy, is uh, all stories work the same way. And stories are built into the DNA of humanity. I'll just prove it to you. If you like to eavesdrop, some of us do. My, my wife and I, like, when we go out to dinner, we'll look at a couple sitting a few tables there. And we're like, hey, I wonder what they're talking about. And then we kind of like make up a dialogue, like this is probably what they're talking about, which is probably not true. But if you like to eavesdrop, do you notice how often our, our dialogues with each other involve sharing a story? Right? You ate where? You, you watched what movie? You met who? You vacationed where? All of our dialogue is storytelling. I'll prove it to you this way. Who here likes to watch movies? Who here likes to binge watch Netflix? There we go. Why is it that movies and Netflix captivate you? It's because you love story. You're made for it. You're built for it. You're designed to crave story. In fact, it is so deeply powerful. Did you know that there is now a cultural, societal term called Netflix cheating? What? Yeah, it's a real thing. Where, where partners, they get legitimately angry if they find out what? The, you, you watched it behind their back. <laughs> Story is so built into your DNA. Okay? Storytelling has been, since ancient past to now today, the biggest way you teach a message and teach a point. Now, do you think that God knows that? Is it possible that God wrote the Bible in a story format to teach you and I the big point of the Bible? That's why we're going to look at the Bible today from cover to cover in the format of a story. In fact, 80% of your Bible, did you know, is story. Some of it's letters, some of it's wisdom literature, some of it's apocalyptic literature. But 80% of your Bible is story for that reason. So, Jeremy, if we can go ahead and put up 
the uh, story slide here, I, I need to teach you how to understand story before I actually dive into the story. Oh, sorry, I'm, I thought it was, uh, it was up there. I'm, I'm, new, I'm new to this. I thought I was supposed to be able to see this up there. Um, all right, this is going to be more like a classroom then. Okay, so if you could actually back up one more, um, Jeremy. All stories are going to have three sets of characters, okay? Your protagonist, antagonist, and foils. Now, your protagonist doesn't always have to be the good guy. Protagonist is just someone who the story is tracking. It follows them. They're the ones making the decisions, doing a lot of the actions. An antagonist comes along and causes trouble, okay? And then there's something called foils, all right, this is the one that most people don't know what a, what a foil is. Uh, and the best way for me to kind of really describe this is, is there anyone familiar with, like, Star Trek? Are there any Trekkies in here? Because this will really help me a lot if you're a Trekkie, okay? In Star Trek, you, you have some main characters. Captain Kirk, he's a main one. Spock, you got Bones, right? Enterprise comes. There's the planet, okay? And they beam down to the planet, now, it's, when they beam down to the planet, it's never just Kurt, Spock, and Bones, okay? Along with them is going to be at least two guys in red shirts. They're not coming back. Why is it that they beam down, and then they're like, all right, guys, let's split up. <laughs> you two with the red shirts are going to go that way. And we're going to go this way. And what's going to happen to the guys in the red shirts? They're dying. They run into the monster. They get killed. Now, why do they get killed? Why do they exist? They exist to show you how dangerous this monster is. Okay, Foils are there to show you that they have something to lose. Foils are there to show you this is a problem. This is dangerous, and you're not going to kill off a main character because then people just stop watching the show. So let's go to the next slide here real quick, Jeremy. All, all stories are going to do this uh, story cycle. All right? And you can think of any movie, like your favorite movie, but just think of any movie or TV show. It always starts out in perfection. All right? um, things are great, but perfection's boring. Perfection's important. If that was all the movie ever was, you'd stop watching it. Because what do you like? You like, um, that should not say perfection. That should say conflict. Sorry, on the right. That's a typo on my part. You and I love tension. You and I love conflict. And the, the quicker that a TV show or a movie can introduce conflict, the quicker you are engaged. Um, and then usually in the story, the problem doesn't get better. The problems always get worse. And they eventually reach what we call rock bottom. This is the point of crisis. And eventually the protagonist has to make a big choice, a big decision. And we call it unexpected twist, and what the climax. And either the protagonist is going to make the right choice and that leads it back to perfection, or the protagonist makes a wrong choice, and that leads it to a tragedy. Now, I was talking to uh, Gray, who's one of our, our youth, went to coffee on Tuesday. I was asking him, hey, what's a movie that probably the grand majority of people have probably seen? And he's like, oh, probably an older Disney movie. So I'm going to just say, safe to say, maybe we've all seen The Lion King, 
I really hope we've all seen the Lion King. And if you haven't, oh, Leslie, oh, Leslie. <laughs> Someone needs to lend her a VHS or those. They, <laughs> it's a willpower. Oh, man. All right, missing out. Lion King, okay. You guys picture the Lion King. How does that movie start, right? Starts with, yeah, I can't do that part. <laughs> it's perfect. Things are wonderful in The Lion King. And then all of a sudden, you're introduced to Scar. And you can just tell by looking at Scar, this guy's, this guy's going to be a problem. And then you, you hear Scar getting together with all the hyenas. And what are they talking about? I'm going to be king. We're going to kill Mufasa. All right. is, is conflict getting higher or getting lower? Conflict's getting higher. Simba has a moment with his father, Mufasa. What are they talking about under the stars? Mufasa is saying, there's going to come a day, son. I'm going to die. And I'm going to join the kings and the stars. Is, is tension going higher or is tension going lower? It's going higher. In the valley, with all the, uh, the stampede, right? And the moment, here's, I'm going to just spoil it here for Leslie since you haven't seen it. <laughs> Someone dies. And it, I, gosh, I'll tell you this. Sorry, this wasn't part of my sermon. I remember the theater I was sitting in when I watched Mufasa die. It's, it's like one of those, like, 9-11 things. Like, where were you? Right? <laughs> I know where I was when I saw Mufasa die. That is Still heartbreaking. Is tension getting higher? Is tension getting lower? Tension's getting higher. And Simba runs away. So you see how the tension just increases and eventually is going to get to this rock bottom. Nala, who's one of the lions, finds Simba. If there's anybody who can save the Pry Lands, it's who? It's Simba. But what does that conversation with Simba go? Is Simba all of a sudden, hey, Yes, I'm going to come back with you right now, and I'm going to go fight my Uncle Scar, and we're going to save the Pride Lands. Is that how the conversation goes? Yeah, not until they, they sing, right? <laughs> she's got she, <laughs> to do a little bit of persuasion. No, he's Akuta matata out. It's not his worry. It's not his concern. That is the rock bottom of Lion King. Now, what's the unexpected twist? is he doesn't expect to run into his father in the clouds. And does anybody remember, what's the message that Mufasa tells Simba? Remember who you are. And when Simba remembered who he was, it gave him the confidence to return back to the Pride Lands, confront his uncle Scar, and save the Pride Lands. The unexpected twist will tell you the treasure of the story. For the Lion King, what's the treasure? Remember who you are will help you confront the hard things in your life. Every movie, and I'm serious, I'm serious as a heart attack, every movie you've seen, your child sees, has an unexpected twist, has a treasure, has a point. Every single movie. And if you catch this cycle, now you'll, you won't be able to watch a movie without picking up what this movie's trying to teach you. 
because all movies follow this cycle. Now, there are some more advanced ones. You can go to the next one, Jeremy. Advanced storytelling is where you put multiple stories and you embed it into a much larger one. Now, the ones who did this the best is actually Star Wars. All right. Okay, Star Wars. All right. Thank you, Leslie. I had to win. I had to get a win with you on something. Star Wars did this great. And I'm talking about the, the original, not the fake ones, episode one, two, and three. I'm talking about the legit, <laughs> legit ones, okay? The big overarching uh, story of Star Wars is it's the Force. It's the good side of the Force versus the dark side of the Force. Who is going to win, the dark side or the light side? And it follows, in the first one, you're, you're following Luke. Luke is the, one of the main protagonists. Who's the antagonist? Darth Vader. And you want to know who's going to win, Luke or Darth Vader. And then sure enough, you, you, you can watch uh, the original Star Wars. You see uh, Luke. He's in the X-Wing. He's trying to blow up the Death Star. He's using the computer equipment. It's not working for him. It comes to a point where Luke has to turn off the computer and do what? Trust in the Force. Which the message of that movie is trust in the Force. Empire Strikes Back. Tension right away. Tension right away. They're storming into the snow base. Darth Vader's killing everybody. And that movie, does that get better or does that get worse? Oh, man. Empire Strikes Back gets so, so, so worse, right? Han Solo's captured. He's frozen. Everyone is dispersed. Luke loses his hand. C-3PO is destroyed, and on top of all that, Luke finds out a stunning discovery about Vader. I am your father. Is tension getting higher or is tension getting lower? Higher. Because now his enemy is not just anybody, right? His enemy is his own father. Does that complicate things? Yeah, just a little bit. And you see, it's all part of this overarching story that leads to the final film. How is this going to end? Luke battles Darth Vader again. And he, he's winning, right? He cuts off Darth Vader's hand. And the Emperor wants, wants Luke to do what? Kill Vader and take his place by my, by my side. And Luke says, no. But that's not the unexpected twist. What's the unexpected twist in Return of the Jedi? Vader. What does Vader do? You don't expect Vader to do this. He attacks the Emperor, which tells you that there was always good inside of him. It tells you and I that it's never too late. It doesn't matter how awful you are. It is never too late to do the right thing. Star Wars is brilliant at this. Next slide. This one is expert storytelling. Now you have multiple stories inside a much larger stories. Do you know why Netflix is so, so compelling? Because this is what they've perfected. Season one, season two, season three, season four, season five. But do, do they ever eliminate the conflict? Do they ever take away the tension, right? No. When a season ends, they, they actually leave you wanting more. Now you can't wait 
for season five. You can't wait for part two of Stranger Things, which I think was two days ago, and I need to catch up on that. (laughs) I know, don't tell me, don't spoil that, because I am watching that. This is what's so good about storytelling. Now, let's next slide. I'll show you what the Bible does, because I need to, to move here. The Bible does this with like a hundred seasons. You tell me how brilliant the Bible is. It took Netflix and it went on steroids. It does a hundred seasons and it still follows a continuous arc. And just to throw out some facts here in the Bible, the Bible's written in only a 2,000 year window, 66 books, 40 authors, written across three continents, and yet it has one cohesive message, which we will discover at the end of today's Bible story. So we'll go ahead and, and, and move in here to the next slide. Uh, if you have your Bible, just turn to Genesis 1.1. It's a pretty easy page to find. Um, so Genesis 1.1, and we're going to read, and I want you to... Who is the protagonist? In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, who? God created. Who's, who's doing all the action in Genesis chapter 1? God's doing it. God did this. God created that. And it was very good. This is perfection. All stories start off this way. Who's the antagonist? Next slide. Genesis chapter 3. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Who's the serpent? Satan, the devil. And it's interesting, it says that he was more crafty. This word means he's very seductive. He's not just smart. He, he knows how to seduce you, how to tie you and rope you in and draw you in. And this is Satan. So he's the antagonist. Who's the protagonist? God. Antagonist, Satan. Who who are the foils, though? Who are the the people in the red shirts? Let's go to the next next slide here. It says in Genesis 3, to the woman, this is after they've sinned, you will surely... Uh, your pain will be multiplied in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. To Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree I commanded you, you shall not eat. Curse the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Who's, who suffered a loss? Mankind did. We're the foils. We're there, I mean, to show how dangerous Satan is. I'm sorry to tell you, but a lot of people, they tend to believe that this whole story is about you. You're the, you're the main character? The No. I'm sorry to tell you, you and I are not the main characters. We're the red shirt Star Trek people. Yeah, <laughs> we're not coming back. So we have been taken out of this amazing garden. Now here's what's interesting about stories. Is this the first time God and Satan have met? Or is there a backstory? There is a backstory. Now again, Star Trek did this as well. To better understand 
Darth Vader, they had to take you back to Anakin Skywalker in episode one, two, and three. Our backstory is helpful. Backstories are, are super helpful. It, the backstory to God and Satan, what's, what did that story was like? You have Satan, at a point his name's Lucifer, Luce, light, and he's there in the, in, in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual kingdom. Is, is, is Satan happy? No. What is, what is Satan unhappy about? Who's in charge? Right. See, and what was his status in heaven? A lot of this is going to be uh, uh, interactive. I'm going to need you guys to help me and chime in. What was Satan's status in heaven? He was number two. Number two in the entire universe. Let me ask you, would your mom be proud if you were number two in the entire universe? I, I think so, right? I mean, she'd be proud if you were number two of your high school grade graduating class. Francis and I are just happy Ezra goes number two. Number two in the entire universe, but he wanted more. What was the problem? Someone was sitting in his seat, and that's God. Theology 101 tells you there is one God, and you aren't him. So what does Satan do? I mean, Satan, is Satan smart? Oh, Satan's brilliant. Is he wise? Maybe not wise, but he is smart. Do you start a fight that you know you can't win? No. So what does Satan have to do? He's got to rally. He's got to recruit people. Let me ask you, how do you how do you recruit people? How would Satan go about recruiting the angels? Could be some smack talking, slandering, promising things. Promise. He has to promise you things. If I wanted, and I know that this is being videotaped, to take over Journey Church, <laughs> let's overthrow Pastor Mark. Oh. I mean, Don, don't don't you deserve a yellow Corvette? Right? I th- don't don't you think <laughs> that's Scott's car? <laughs> Stephanie, what do you, we need to give you a much bigger paycheck? You know, can can we gotta we gotta put your picture frame on all our walls? <laughs> I mean, whatever it is, okay. I have to promise you something that you're not getting in the current system. I have to make you so discontent, so dissatisfied with the, with the current system that you will join me. Now, I'm doing a poor job of recruiting here at, at Journey Church. I don't think I'm going to be able to overthrow Mark on this Sunday. Okay. <laughs> the shoots, yeah, right? Thank you. Um, at best, I can maybe recruit like 10%. Of you guys, and that's that's being very generous. How how much was Satan able to recruit? A third, a third, thirty three percent of the heavenly bodies he was able to recruit. I think at best I can do ten percent. 
He can do one-third, which tells you and I how good, how good is Satan at, at seducing. He's, he's got to be really good to convince a third of the angels to turn against God. Has God done anything wrong? No, he can't do anything wrong. He's God. He's perfect. So he must be really good at seducing. So he gets a third of the angels. And yeah, there's another two-thirds, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to join the fight. Maybe they just sit back and watch. But at some point, Satan decides... You go ahead and put the next slide up, uh, Jeremy. Satan decides he has enough people to launch his attack. And he's convinced in five minutes he's going to be God and he's going to be ruling the entire universe. And they launch their attack and for the first time ever, there is war outside the gates of heaven. And how long does this fight last? Now, the text makes it sound like it was like that. God flexed his right arm and he swept Satan and his angels like you and I would sweep crumbs off the dinner table. It just tells you how easy and effortless it is for God to just to do that. Now, here's where I want to take your thinking. Join me here. As Satan is falling, what do you think the other angels, the other fallen angels think about Satan at this point? Are they happy with Satan? No. Why? He didn't deliver. Satan promised them lots. But Satan delivered what? Oh no, not just nothing. He delivered way worse. Which tells you and I... Something huge about Satan. Satan, Satan will, will want to promise you the world, and he's going to give you hell in return. He did it then, he does it now. Now, what does Satan think just for himself? What, what do you think, as Satan is falling out of heaven, what do you think Satan is thinking about towards God? Oh, I'm going to get you, right? Do you think he might be full of revenge and rage? I mean, he hated God before. How much more do you think Satan hates God? He must have been thinking about other ways to, to get at God. I'm sure Satan, he, he sat down and he got his notepad out and he's like, I'm going to come up. I'm going to come up with a plan. And the minute he writes his plan, who knows about his plan? God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He gets together with the other demons. All right, guys. I think the first time he just, you know, maybe we needed to be a little bit sneakier. Let's come from behind this time. I think our, our problem was we, we tried to go for a front attack. Let's go behind the back, and we're going to hide behind this bush. And the minute they hide behind the bush, they look to the right, and who do they see? God, because he's omnipresent. How do you attack the invincible? He has no weak spots. He has no weak points. How does Satan get revenge on an invincible God? That's who he loves. All of a sudden, God creates for the second time. The first time is when he created the, the heaven the spiritual beings. 
All of a sudden, Satan sees God do something. He creates again. And he creates all these stars, and he creates all these planets, and all these galaxies. But he notices God is paying attention to one planet in particular. And he notices that God is not just paying close attention to this one planet. He's actually paying close attention to this one garden. And he sees God speaking things into existence, but then he sees something he's never seen God do before. He creates something in his own what? Image. Now, now we have something God loves. Now's the time to get at God. This is, this is the old uh, mafia, mafia strategy. If you can't get to the dawn, you get to his loved ones. Uh, what, 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 a film that did this great is, is the uh, Superman v. Batman. All right, does anyone remember, how does Lex Luthor get Superman to fight Batman? Who does Luthor kidnap? His mom. He kidnaps Clark Kent's mom, Martha. Shows him pictures. If you don't go and fight Batman, we're going to kill her. Superman, who is by far one of the strongest superheroes in DC and Marvel comics, bends to the will of Lex Luthor simply because he has the loved one. So yeah, when Satan saw Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, this is the time to attack. Is tension getting higher or is tension getting lower? Higher. Let's go to another story. Adam and Eve, they have two, two boys, two sons, Cain and Abel. How do these boys get along? Not, not too well, right? They're giving sacrifice, and Cain brings an offering of what? Fruits and vegetables. And Abel, he brings an offering of what? Meat. And God loves what better? Meat. Who doesn't? Love meat. Meat's delicious. Obviously, God doesn't worry about cholesterol. Cain gets jealous, and Cain does what? Kills his own brother. Now, you think about this story. I mean, does it really make much sense? I mean, does it really need to escalate to murder just because he brought fruits and vegetables and he brought meats? What's really behind this story? What, what did Abel bring? What is, if you read the text, what did Abel bring to God? His first fruits and his best. To kind of help you understand this, this little story here, i got to tell you something about pets, believe it or not. I have a friend in California, they, they, they breed dogs, and they sell these dogs for thousands upon thousands of dollars. Now, you just figure, if you wanted a, a, a family dog, how, how could you best and most easily and cost-effectively go get a, a dog? Well, not stealing. I heard someone say stealing. That's you can adopt a dog. Go to the, go to the shelter. You can get one for free. Or you can get one for for twenty bucks. But no, maybe you want. I want a purebred. Are you going to pay a little bit more for for a purebred dog? Yeah. Well, pet quality. There's so much more to the story because if you don't want just a purebred, 
Maybe you want what's called a, a, a show dog, show quality. How much is show quality dog? That one's going to be a couple thousand. But then, even above show dog, you have championship dogs. These are the dogs you put into the show that are guaranteed to win. How much is a championship dog? Probably about five, six thousand. And then, what if you wanted to purchase a female championship dog? And it costs $10,000. Why would anybody spend $10,000 on a dog when you can go and get a dog for nearly free? Who would spend $10,000 on a, on a dog? Right. It doesn't make sense, right? Unless you think like a farmer. Because you're not buying this dog. You're buying its future litters. Think about it. How many times in a year will this dog go into heat? At least twice, but you're only supposed to breed them once. How many litters might it have total? Maybe five, six litters. How many dogs in a litter? You can have up to eight, sometimes three. So between three and eight. Do you guys see it? How many of these dogs are going to be Championship dogs. At least a couple. How many of them are going to be show quality dogs? Probably the rest. Do you see what's happening here? You're buying the future. This thing's an ATM. You're going to make your money back and then some. So when we talk about bringing your best, when Abel brought his best meat... We're not talking about a $20 whatever. He brought championship quality. He doesn't know if he's going to get other litters, other championship dogs. He doesn't know that. He just knows that, God, you are going to have the absolute best thing I can give you. And Cain just it brings fruits and vegetables. Now, is there anything wrong with bringing fruits and vegetables? nothing wrong with that. In Jewish law, you have a grain offering. But what Cain did is he didn't give God his best. And when he saw God give the favor to Abel, it made him jealous. This is a story of jealousy. And Satan saw jealousy. He saw the anger, and Satan said, I could use that. In fact, didn't God warn Cain? He said, hey, sin is at your doorstep. He's, God shows up. Like, oh, not, God's just like, oh, let's just let this thing play out. No, God intervenes on Cain and he says, look, you're going to make a mistake if you let this sin get its teeth in you. And sure enough, it does. And it leads Cain to kill his, his brother. Is, is tension getting higher or getting lower? Higher. But here's the bigger question. Who seems to be winning? Satan. Continuing the story after, after Cain and Abel, the planet gets so wicked, so dark, so evil, 
that God decides that he needs to what? He needs to flood the earth and start over. You know, you know, if things have got to be bad when you need to start from scratch again. But hey, there's one guy. There was one righteous man, right? And his name is Noah, the man of faith who got into the boat of faith. And I know it was a boat of faith. And here's what's interesting. I'm not sure if anyone's ever taught you this about Noah's ark. But what was so special about this boat? It's not what it had. It's what it didn't have. It didn't have a rudder. It didn't have a rudder. This boat has no way of steering itself, controlling itself, propelling itself. It is literally a very big basket. It is a basket that is entirely at the dependency of God. That is what faith is. What saves you from catastrophic judgment? It's faith. It's when you put your entire self into the basket and you know that you cannot contribute. You cannot control it. You do not propel it. You do not power it. You just get in the baskets. And in faith, God will save you. That's what the flood story teaches us. And sure enough, the boat lands, everybody gets out, Noah builds a, a, a monument to God, and then Noah does what? Gets drunk. I'm so glad to say that. Yay, let's have a party, let's get drunk. Let's rebuild humanity on the DNA of a drunk. That sounds like a wonderful idea. <laughs> Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Right? And then and then the world is perfect after that, right? Things just are great after God starts over, right? That's how the story goes? No, sadly, it doesn't. It gets so bad that God says, you know what? I'm not going to worry about you guys. I'm just going to focus on this one family now. I'm just going to focus on this one family. And he finds one guy, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham, I'm going to work through you, and we're going to bless people through you. Stand-up guy, right, when he's not lying about his, his wife being his, his sister. Mostly good guy. He has a son, his name, Isaac. But he also has another son, Ishmael, right? How'd those boys get along? Not really. Yeah, I mean, Ishmael was banished. Uh, they didn't have much of a relationship. So a little bit of dysfunction in this family? A little bit. Isaac... Isaac has two boys, twins. What are their names? Jacob and Esau. On the next slide there, Jeremy. How did these two boys get along, right? Oh, they loved each other, right? They, when they fought, they were like, oh, no, let me make your bed. No, let me make your bed, right? That's how these boys fought, right? No, that's not how these boys fought. Esau, what kind of guy is Esau? Is he, is he the kind of upstanding, righteous guy you want? To be your, your godly leader? No. He, he, he sold out God for what? Bowl of stew. No. Oh, Jacob's so much better, though. Oh, man. Right? Jacob, Jacob is who you preach on Father's Day. Right? Father of the year. 
Jacob gets sent, sent away, and when he returns back to his promised land to, to face an angry brother, who does he send first? He sends his wife and his kids first to see what happens to them. And if they get killed, then he knows, okay, I'm going to stay back. It's a good thing I sent the wife and kids first. Father of the year, right? Great guy. Is tension getting higher, tension getting lower. Tension's rising. Who seems to be winning? Satan. Jacob, 12 kids. And you have 12 kids, but one kid, you're just going to spoil him. You're going to give him all these cool things, cool clothes. You're going to make sure all the other kids are going to know he's the favorite kid, right? That's, that's really good for family dynamics, right? Very healthy. Now, it doesn't work so well for Joseph, right? Long story short, the Jews make their way into Egypt, right? After a famine, they need something to eat, and in Egypt, they find food. And then what? They take over Egypt, right? They become the new pharaohs of the land, and they become the new superpower of the world. Is that how it works out for them in Egypt? What happens to them? They become slaves. They become the assembly line of Egypt. Not the assembly line workers, no. They are the gears of this machine. And how long are they slaves in Egypt for? Does anyone know? Very close. 430 years of being slaves. What does that do to a people group? 430 years. How many generations have gone by of being slaves? At some point, this is all you know. At some point, this is all you've ever known. Here is God's people, and they've been slaves for 430 years. Is tension getting higher? Tension getting lower? Higher. And who is winning? But God raises up Moses. Now he has to take him out of Egypt, right? He takes someone in with his secular training, removes him, gives him godly training, and then sends a leader. And Moses shows up. God works 10 powerful miracles. He takes the Jews out of Egypt. They run into the Red Sea and they're trapped. But no, God makes a way. Things seem to be doing great, right? These are fantastic. And they reach the promised land and they cross into the promised land, right? And, and, and it's a happy ending. Is that what happens? No, they get to the promised land and what happens? Can do it. Why? Are the grapes too big, Don? Oh, giant, giant grapes? Is that the problem? I'm sorry. The, the, the land is, is flowing with, with milk and... Oh, no. Oh, no. We can't. No. We can't. We just saw God destroy the largest superpower the world has ever known. And now we believe he can't take care of giants. No, God is angry again, and he gets back. I, he has to do what now? God feels he needs to start over again. He says, this generation, y'all aren't, aren't going to go into the promised land. It'll be your kids. It'll be your kids, except for Josh and Caleb. You guys are cool. You guys can go. It gets bad again, where 
God needs to start over. Seen a little bit of a pattern here? And he makes them wander for how many years? 40. Like, if, why can't, couldn't God just wipe them out in an instant? Why 40 years? I mean, that's... Yeah, Moses intervenes. And those 40 years were great times of, of training up the second generation. So when they got back, the second generation gets to, to the Jordan for the second time, and this time they do what? They do cross, and they do enter, and they do the conquest, and God says, hey, I need you to take the land from these people who are being crooked and cruel and wicked. And the Israelites go, they take the land, and the Israelites what? They become this amazing, perfect, holy, righteous beacons of, of godliness, right? No. They become just like the people that they were supposed to kick out. Instead of kicking them out, they decided, hey, we want to we be just like you, crooked and cruel and evil and anti-God. Tension getting higher, tension getting lower, and who seems to be winning? Satan. Oh, but then God, God raises up uh, some heroes here. Next slide. He, he has these judges, people, Samson, great guy, right? Fantastic guy, right? He didn't do anything wrong. It's a whole other sermon for another day where that guy went way wrong. Oh, but King David, right? What a guy. I mean, he took down Goliath. Man after God's own heart. He's, he was a great guy, right? Most days. Started out good. Eh, a little shaky on the exit. I mean, he didn't do the best job with Absalom. That's, again, a sermon for another day. His hands are so bloody that God says, no, you're not going to be the one who rebuilds the temple. Won't allow it. Spiral, spiral. It gets to this point where the kingdom divides. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, ten tribes. And, and, God sending prophet after prophet after prophet, turn from sin, turn from your evil. Stop this. Come back to me. Come back to me. Do they come back to God? No. The Assyrians come in, annihilate those ten tribes. The northern kingdom doesn't even exist. It's poof, gone. But the southern kingdom, right? Judah, they, great, great examples, right? They got it right. No. Prophets like Jeremiah show up. And what did they even what did they do to the prophets? Killed the prophets. God is trying his best to reach his people. And they're killing the very people bringing the message. Gets so bad that the Babylonians come and what? Capture the Israelites. Take them out of their land into Babylon into the exile. That nation, it's gone, and now they're just back to being slaves. Tension higher, tension lower. And who's definitely winning? Satan. Now the Israelites get to make a return back to, back to Israel. Right? Thank you, Ezra. He led that, along with Nehemiah. And they rebuild. But it's, is it the same? No, it's only a 
a pale shadow of the splendor that was in Solomon's day? And are their hearts towards God or away from God? Or on the away from God? This is where I need help from the audience. Specifically if you're married. Has anyone ever heard of the cold shoulder? What is the cold shoulder? Who can? I don't know what the cold shoulder is. Uh, Francis and I have a perfect marriage. <laughs> what is the cold? What is the cold cold shoulder treatment like? Silence. Silence. Come in. You come in the door. Hey, honey. Don't mm. even look at you. Um, thanks for making supper. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You turn on the TV just to break the silence. Now, what would you think about a married couple that hadn't talked to each other in a week? Problematic? Yeah, a little bit. What would you say if it's a married couple haven't spoken to each other in a month? Might be a, that might be a problem. What if this married couple haven't spoken to each other in 10 years? Yes. Psychology tells us that communication is to relationship like blood is to the body. The minute it stops flowing, it's dead. God gave Israel the cold shoulder for how many years 400 years of silence at this point you might just start to think i think god divorced us at this point you might just start to think i think god's done but then something amazing happens a child is born. A child unlike any other child is born. And his name? Jesus. Jesus comes in to the picture. Now here's what's interesting is Satan is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know everything. Satan probably doesn't even know Jesus is born yet, but he finds out. Can anyone guess, how does Satan find out about Jesus. The stinking magi. Right? They show up to Herod, right? They come up to Herod and they go, hey, where is the king of the Jews? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And Herod finds out about this. Now Herod, who, if you know a little bit about Herod, okay, kills like his own prodigy. He kills his own son in order to keep his power. He is so obsessed with being the king of the Jews that he kills his own sons. That even Caesar himself, this is a quote from, from Caesar, he says, it is better to be uh, Herod's pig than it is to be his son. Caesar said that about Herod. So now, Satan knows there's a problem. Jesus 
is here. So what does Satan need to do? We need to kill this little baby. And so what's, and Satan doesn't pull back the punches. Not like he just, Satan just sends anybody to kill the baby. Who does Satan choose to kill the baby? Herod. Satan's like, I need this job to be so well done. I'm not going to just send one or two persons. I am going to get a king to do a demon's job. I need a king to kill all the babies. I don't want any room for error. This Jesus needs to be eliminated. Now, of course, does God know the plan? Yeah. God saved Jesus. Yeah. Going to Egypt a little bit. And after Egypt, do they return back to Bethlehem? No. No, no, no. Where does God hide Jesus? In a country called Nazareth. Nazareth. You know a little thing about, does anyone know anything about Nazareth? Of course you don't. It's like backwater Kansas. No, it's, it's nowhere. It's nothing. It's, it's no one knows. It's the sticks. He's in the, the witness protection program. We're going to hide Jesus in nowhere Kansas where Satan won't know where to find him. How many years go by that Satan has no idea where Jesus is. 30 years. 30 years. And then there's this one magnificent event that Jesus does that is like the spotlights on him. And that's his baptism. He shows up, is baptized by John the Baptist, and what happens? God shows up, Right? God speaks and God says what? This. Do you pay close attention. What, what is God doing right now? If Satan's watching, he's like, hey, Satan, right here. You see him? This this guy right here? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At that point, he put a big fat bullseye on Jesus. And you can read all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic, sin means together, and optic means look. They look together. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this all together. Jesus' baptism, and immediately after, temptation in the desert. Baptism, immediately temptation. You know what this is? This is what you and I call a showdown. It's a showdown. This is how things were done in wartime in, in, the, in the ancient world. You ever see the movie Troy? Anyone? It's kind of an older movie, right? Send out your best warrior, right? This is David and Goliath. We spew insults at each other. Send out your best warrior. Let's handle this. Let's settle this one-on-one, you and I. That's what Jesus was doing to Satan. You and I, let's meet it in the wilderness. Just you and me. And how many, how many days was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. And what was he doing the whole time? Playing Nintendo Switch? Praying and fasting. Praying 
and fasting. And what does prayer and fasting do for an individual? Strengthens your spirit. Heals. There's a lot of stuff. But what it does is it laser focuses your attention on God. He was so in tune. He was so commune with God in those 40 days. And Satan shows up. And is this, is this a win for Satan? No. No, it's not. This is now a shocking realization that Satan cannot get this man to sin. Because wouldn't that be the best strategy for Satan? If I can just get Jesus to sin, it ruins everything for everybody. Why? If he gets Jesus to sin, why is that a problem? And if he's sinful, he's not a savior. He cannot be a perfect sacrifice. That is the most efficient checkmate move that Satan could pull off. And he failed. So if you can't get Jesus to sin, what's plan B? Kill him. Kill him a decade from now? A couple decades from now? Should we, does Satan think, hey, we should let him live like Abraham over 100 years? Is that what Satan's thinking? No. We need to kill him today and publicly and shamefully. And here's, here's the cooler, not so cool, but the way Satan works. Who did he use to kill Jesus? In some ways, yes, the government, but who, who, was, who was nudging the government? The Pharisees. If you think about this, who are the people? Who should have been the people on Team Jesus? It should have been the, the religious leaders. It should, they were, you know, they're the pastors, the pastors of, of that day. You would think that the pastors would be Team Jesus, right? That makes sense. Satan is so seductive. Right? How smart is he? Oh, he's brilliant. He's so smart, he can get the religious leaders to kill Jesus. Oh, and it gets so much better. Oh, man, it gets so much better. Satan uses one of the 12. Oh, let's get one of his closest to betray him. We'll get another to deny him. How? Not, not why, but how does Judas betray Jesus? Say it louder. With a kiss. Why is that meaningful? It's love. I mean, isn't a kiss one of the most common, most popular, most profound expressions of love? It's intimate. And Satan took something that God made that was beautiful and wonderful, and Satan twisted it to now be a tool of betrayal and murder. Oh, man, Satan, he must have, he must have had a good laugh with that. Puts Jesus on the cross. 
Of course, he's, he's beaten to almost death before that. Mocked and shamed. And killed. Here, think about this. Look what's happening. This is the one hope, the one chance that you and I have has now just been killed and removed off the table completely. He's dead. This is rock bottom. This is as dark as the darkness gets. But it had to happen. The disciples, they go into hiding. There's just, this is it. Now, is there an unexpected twist? What's the unexpected twist to this story? The resurrection. Oh, the resurrection. Small thing. Hmm. And why is the resurrection so so meaningful? What's so important about the resurrection? Brings forgiveness. It proves that Jesus is who he's been saying he is. I am the Son of Man. I am I and the Father are one. I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection is the unexpected twist. And how does Satan, Satan waits waits three days, comes back to the tomb to laugh at a dead Jesus and finds an empty tomb. What does Satan do? He's probably screaming, what's happened? I thought I won. And I've been leading you guys through this entire story from the beginning to the resurrection Do you think Satan this whole time thought he was winning? Says so. And yet the whole time he thought he was winning and he never actually was. Because God in Jesus resurrected. New life, forgiveness, transformation. The unexpected twist is the treasure of the story, and that is the resurrection. Because with the resurrection, that, the foils, the red shirts, do we now have an open door back to God? Yes. Now, this is what all stories do. Once, once the problem has been dealt with, the movie usually ends very quickly after that. Luke destroys the Death Star, and it's almost immediately, it's the uh, medal ceremony. And then the movie's done. It ends quickly because once, once the movie doesn't have any tension, you're no longer interested. Okay, Tension is what keeps you watching a TV show. Now that Jesus is resurrected, death is conquered, Satan's beaten, the only two scenes left is Pentecost. God decides, hey, let's just open the floodgates for the Holy Spirit. Now, instead of just having one king who's supercharged with the Holy Spirit, what if I gave every believer, every Christian, a super dose of the Holy Spirit, and I sent them out on the planet to go, therefore, and 
make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, that we can go out and love our neighbor and we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. And then the very last scene of the Bible is what? The new heaven and the new earth. So if you actually show the, um, the next slide for me, Jeremy, we're going to almost close here. All stories follow this loop, but the next slide is what the Bible does. Most movies bring you back to perfection. This is what almost every biblical story will do. I don't have time to do every story for you. After the conflict, after the problem has been dealt with by God, he doesn't bring it back to perfection. You know what he does? Makes it better. How do I know that the next heaven and the next earth is going to be better than the original? Because Satan will truly be defeated. Sin's not there. But the easiest way that I can prove it to you Moses wrote Genesis. Did Moses have the language to describe the garden? He did. John, he gets a, a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. Does John have the language to describe what the new heaven and new earth is going to look like? It's too beautiful. It's too glorious. He can't find the words to tell you what's coming. All Bible stories have what's called a grace effect. And that is true of your story and my story. You and I have our own individual stories. You and I have dealt with our own conflict. We've all had different antagonists in our lives. And yet the unexpected twist is when Jesus showed up and he resurrected you. Right? You must be born again, like a resurrection. And when, when, you, were, when you were resurrected, did you just kind of go back to being the same person you always were? Is that, how it, is that how it works? You end up better than how you started. It's called the grace effect. So I'm going to just end it here. What is the big point of the Bible from cover to cover? How does humanity have a re restored relationship with God? What's the unexpected twist? The resurrection. How do you and I get a restored relationship with God? It is the resurrection of Jesus. Proves he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father Set through him. We close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have shown us a magnificent story in, in a book that usually just collects dust on a coffee table. But this story, it shows us that Satan is an incredible threat, was an incredible threat. And you decided that you would never, ever give up on us. Though countless times we turn our back, 
You remember us. You seek after us. Lord, as the text says that I, I couldn't get to today is, you came to seek and to save the lost. If there was ever a main point, big point of the Bible, is that you came to seek to save the lost, and you proved it by dying on the cross and by rising again from the grave. That any man or woman who puts their faith in you like Noah put his faith in a big basket would have a restored relationship with God the Father. We would be born again and we would be better, way better than we ever were before without you. We thank you so much for saving us, for dying for us, and for rising for us. In Jesus' name, amen.